I'm Cesar Rubio, five-time past master of Palm Springs Laws number 693, and this is Masonic Muscle, where we focus on the strongest aspect of Freemasonry, a virtuous education of the mind, fortifying it with wise and serious truths, encouraging all brethren to increase their level of fitness one degree at a time, making exercise and study a cornerstone of our daily routine because Freemasonry is work. When you put in the work, you get closer and closer to the point within the circle. Masonic muscle. We give you more light, but no light weights. So get to it. And let's get started. All right. Welcome back. Welcome back to another episode. Uh, real quick, I just wanted to share with all of you, uh, once again, if you've been enjoying the Masonic Muscle podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you took one minute to give me a review on iTunes or Spotify. It helps me out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you so much. Please consider sharing the show with friends or family members, and especially Masons who you think would get something out of it. Word of mouth is a primary way Masonic muscle grows and spreads. Please share. Uh, text a friend. Send an email. Do whatever. However you communicate, tell them to check out a particular episode if you think they will get something out of it. You can also make donations to the show. Just click on the link, fill out the form, and donate whatever you feel you can donate. If Masonic Muscle has brought any sort of value to you as far as uh, Masonic education or encouraging you to uh, you know, get up off your ass and start going out there and walking and getting some uh, circulation, better circulation going, getting some sun, getting some fresh air, drinking more water, then, then please you know, donate. Buy me a cup of coffee. Thank you uh, for your continued support. And now, on to the show. As I uh, shared with you in the last episode, uh, MasonicCon, you know, Sunday well, was the last day for pre-sale tickets, but I was just on the website. I was just telling Matt, I was just on the website, and they still have the pre-sale sale. So go on there at MasonicCon.com and get your tickets right now at, at the pre-sale price unless they just took them off right now in the moment that i clicked on real quick uh you know like i said before there's going to be speakers there, we have panels screenings vendors a giant festive board on the opening friday it's going to be awesome so i'm going to go back to something i i touched upon uh, in, in our last podcast and i was sharing with uh, matt you know, that uh, as I was listening to some of our other brothers' uh, Masonic podcast, they were touching upon Fourth of July and freedoms and uh, patriotism and nationalism and the differences between that. Uh, but I want to set the table here so we can have a conversation, and I want to get your insights on this, Matt. So okay. let me set it up. So uh, on July 4, 1776, the 13 colonies claimed their independence from England, an event that eventually led to the formation of the United States. Each year on the 4th of July, also known as Independence Day, Americans celebrate this historic event. Many Masonic podcasts focus some time on this theme and especially its connections to Freemasonry. They talked about the sacrifices made by our founding fathers and patriots of the colonies, but what they did not touch upon was that once you earned your freedoms, then you must keep fighting for them. Eternal vigilance is the price we pay in order to keep our freedoms. They also did not talk about how General George Washington was a Freemason, and most, if not all, his generals were Freemasons along with Lafayette. He more than likely had lodge meetings in tents and posted a soldier as a tyler outside of the door to ensure no one came near these meetings. As I'm reading that, Matt, what comes to mind? <clears throat> you were in the Army. Yeah, well... It definitely, uh, there is a protocol for signal. Signal is uh, in military vernacular. That's communications, how communication happens. Uh, it happens through signal. You'd have a signal officer or something, something like that. So uh, <clears throat> communications are a tightly <coughs> controlled um, aspect of military movement and military life. Um, but to... Um, you know, to your question, what it re really reminds me of is is the spy network that that Washington had is is the first thing that comes to mind because this is pretty much not really contested uh, anymore. We don't even really know who all of his uh, agents were. We know that he had 
He had agents operating in the court of England. Um, he had insights into the finance, uh, the state of finance of the, uh, the British Empire, and it allowed him to, to play a hand that he would not otherwise have played uh, if he did not have that, that intelligence. So. so I'm glad you mentioned that, uh, Matt. Uh, so I'm, uh, again, I, I'm glad you brought that up because a book came out uh, not too long ago called Washington's Secret Six, and it's about exactly what you talk about. Um, the, the Culver Spiring is what they call it. And it was based upon historical facts you know, about uh, how Washington broke the backs of the evil empire right back then and how these uh, citizens, spies that didn't have any formal training on espionage or anything were able to outwit time and time again the, the British spies, which were renowned for being the greatest spies and having the greatest spy network in the world, hence their empire. So... Now we're talking about, you know, I just read a little something about, you know, that he was a, a Freemason. Most of his generals were Freemasons. And now they're having a Masonic meeting, which uh, obviously requires secrecy. They're having secrecy. It, it, it was like a match made in heaven uh, at that time. But uh, it just, uh, just reading that book and learning just how brave these, these uh, patriots were, and some of them... We still don't know their names. Two of them, I think, their names were never revealed. Uh, most of them, I think, they have their names because they were able to match the uh, the handwriting of certain men to the handwriting of people that they knew around there. And then, yeah, he, here, here's here they are. Uh, but what what a time! Uh, what what a time to be alive during that time because they 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 put it all on the line. I mean, they, there was no coming back from that. Like, once they declared their independence, and it, once the war ended, if they lost, everyone was dead. Everyone was going to be hung. So, yeah, you know, sacrifices, yeah, I mean, that goes without saying, right? But what were some of the, what were some of the ideals? Like, uh, we, you and I talk a lot about sovereignty and self-reliance and uh, our God-given rights, well, first, just to, to go back to uh, what you were saying before, um, as far as uh, Washington and his ability to set up this network, um, if he did that, if he set up that network through Freemasonry, Freemasonry already had the infrastructure uh, to do this, right, to carry occulted messages and uh, even encrypt those messages. All of that was already, uh, Freemasonry already had those tools, so if he did it through the the Masonic network, then it, it's not it's not much of a stretch at all to see how he would have done that, and also how how effective mm. uh, that it would have been. Um, <clears throat> to um, so as as far as <laughs> so as as far as our as the the notion and the idea of sovereignty and and liberty that our uh, founding fathers were were fighting for, um, uh, this it was just that. And I hear a lot of I guess just to <clears throat> give it this preface, uh, I hear a lot in the vernacular when people refer to our our rights. They speak to that the, the Constitution gives us rights, right? Our, our rights are given by that document, and this is incorrect. Um, our, our founding documents are actually controls on government. Our, our founding documents don't give rights to the individual. We, uh, our founding documents acknowledge certain inalienable, inalienable rights that the citizenry has, but those documents themselves they don't provide us any rights, right? Those, those documents are controls uh, on government. So this was, this was entirely new. And, and this was, <clears throat> and so this is where the, uh, the idea, I believe, as far as the founding fathers 
we're putting forward this idea of personal sovereignty is actually something that's protected by the state, right? Liberty, individual liberty uh, is, is protected by the state. So <clears throat> we do have an issue, and we've come across this before, where we refer to these men as, as being patriots. But when you look up uh, patriot, patriot has a circular definition. Uh, and, and we'll find a lot of these words that, that we're going to use here uh, tonight. If you actually go looking for the definitions, you'll find these, these circular definitions. We're, so, you, we're using words now? Yeah, yeah, we're, we're going to use words now. Okay. That's right. All right. So, um, so uh, you know, a, a patriot is an interesting word to examine because we, we use this, this word is used prevalently and heavily today. Uh, politicians use it. Citizens use it. Um, but it seems to be used in a, in a context for an individual who fights for a nation state. Uh, as the definition of of patriot. a patriot, and I have a bit of an issue with this because these people that we call patriots as our founding fathers, they had no nation. They weren't they weren't fighting. The United born. States wasn't born yet. They belonged to the colony that they they lived belonged in. to the colony that they that okay. they lived in, and they were they were fighting for that that sovereignty and that freedom, you know, outside of outside of a monarchy. Hmm. So, so I think that when we, uh, when we begin to, uh, you know, tackle the terminology of what patriotism is, I think the idea, the notion of patriotism is actually something above statehood. It's, it's something above someone who start, who, someone who fights for a nation state. That's, that's what a soldier is. A soldier fights for a nation. But patriot, uh, patriot sounds very, very similar to like a nationalist uh, as well, right? It, it does. And, and they're, they're easily grouped in there. But again, they didn't have a nation. Yeah, so they were, they they, were patriots. They were. They, were, they were fighting for something else, right? They're... they're their colony wasn't recognized as an independent sovereign state, right? So, but the, what they wanted was recognition, right? That was a part of the big hole. The Boston Tea Party was over a, a small a small tax, right? Put on tea <clears throat> without representation, and that was enough. That was enough of an offense, right? That they would that they would take arms up against this. And you have um, um, authors like uh, Charles A. Beard. And uh, Albert J. Nock, he wrote a book. Albert J. Nock wrote a book uh, back in 1920s uh, called Our Enemy of the State. And he uh, actually used a lot of, of uh, uh, Charles A. Beard's material when it comes to exactly what you were just saying, where um, Charles A. Beard and, and uh, Albert J. Nock were both saying that they never, they never actually achieved the founding fathers and the constitution, what, what they were trying to achieve, because it's so difficult to do. So there, you know, as soon as the war was over and the constitution was written, uh, er, there was a mad scramble for political control of this new system and money, because there was a lot of money and favors and privileges to be had. And we can see that today. And there was, by the way, there was no democratic pro uh, party or Republican party back at the beginning this is something relatively new you did have loyalists and you did have uh was it the tories and some yep. of these are the Whigs, some of these yep. other uh, maybe federalists but you you did not have republicans and so the the idea of sovereignty uh, according to these authors was never achieved and has never been achieved and this was already in the 1930s when they were talking about this so this is nothing new uh, like we're always saying, there's nothing new under the sun. This is nothing new, uh, according to uh, the, the the best authors. And if you've never heard of Charles A. Beard, uh, there's a reason for that. You know, look it up and see what happened and uh, w with this man. Because at the time of uh, when he was alive, he was the leading authority on the history of the United States and the colonies. I mean, he he was the end all be all, along with maybe one or two others in the United States. And whatever he said, everyone else followed along. And so he was, uh, 
very, very clear and honest when he came, as honest as he can be, right? Because the, we always say the victors write history. And so we have the history that we have. And how do we verify that? We got to continue to go back and, and research and research and research and find what we're looking for. But at that time, he, he was um, one of the big dogs of United States history of America. And, and the way, if you, get, if you ever get a chance of getting his books, Charles A. Beard, buy them and read them. And you're going to wonder why you never got that education when we went through you know, school instead of the U.S. education that we ended up getting, which isn't wrong, but it's, there, there are things missing. All you got to do is take out one or two key facts and it's not the same no more. So uh, anyhow, sovereignty, what are, you know, God-given rights, our natural God-given rights, and, you know, radical, these radical ideas that uh, were unheard of. Yeah, you had philosophers like Locke and uh, Thomas Paine and uh, Voltaire. They were going around in France, you know, uh, liberty, equality, fraternity, you know, and it's, it's Freemasonry over there as well. So you had these ideas, you know, uh, circulating, but they still had a king in France. We, we had a king in England, you know, as colonists. So these, these ideas were like blasphemous to them, but they were being talked about in behind lodge walls. They were being, a lot of those things were being practiced already. These, uh, one man, one vote, um, freedom of speech, freedom of expression. A man can get up and talk his mind and not without fear of reprimand. Well, I think the, the general consensus really from the Greeks is that democracy doesn't really work. So that, that was most nations moving through that period and most of the educated, I think, also had that that view that democracy doesn't work because you have the uneducated casting the vote. Uh, the, you have the uneducated basically um, in, directly involved in the affairs of state of which they know nothing about. Mm. Right, so this was a strong argument. This was the monarchist argument. The monarchists, yes. So, so what they were pushing for was unpopular, um, even amongst other colonists. I mean, these guys were not all on the same sheet of music when it came to how we were going to do this thing. And as a matter of fact, most of the signers of the Declaration of Independence... Uh, I don't think any of them survived that. Uh, some of them were left penniless. You know, they, okay, they, some, yeah. some died and they left their, their wives and families penniless. They lost their land. Um, <clears throat> some ended up being uh, imprisoned, right, by the, by the king of England. Um, and others died in the fight. So uh, of the actual signers of the Declaration of Independence, I don't think there was one of them that actually made it out of that soiree in, in good standing. I mean, so these guys, I mean, they really, it cost them everything. Uh, that's why we, uh, you know, we say that they made the ultimate sacrifice. There's my dogs are getting all excited over this conversation. They get all pumped up. They, they want to say their, their piece as well. Uh, they made the ultimate sacrifice, and they did. I mean, that goes without saying that in the history books, uh, we see that it's, it's, it was very well documented. So I don't think these people were making that up. And to go against the strongest power, naval, both naval and, you know, uh, ground power at the time was, was also unheard of. And it just, it's a, it was an incredible time. Will it ever happen again? I, I don't think so, because there was a, a, a number of things in their favor, the colonists' favor, number one, is that we had access to the same artillery and weapons as, you know, the king had. The same grade everything. The only difference is that our, our patriots were not professional military men, and the king's troops were. So that's where Washington had to use his, you know, his big brain and try to outwit Cornwallis. At the beginning, he probably got his ass handed to him. A number of times but you know um, if you fail and fail fast you get to the solutions and that's exactly what he did he began to use guerrilla warfare he began to use uh, uh, everything at his disposal that, that he had that he had learned in his time 
here in the colonies and in the military to help him uh, get us uh, the victory. Now, going back to uh, Freemason real quick, uh, I did mention this in the last in the last podcast. I'll mention it again uh, to add to your um, you know your your thought on it, it. It doesn't take a lot to realize that George Washington used the network, the Masonic network. More than likely, there are no records of that. But you had 13 colonies, and you had 120 lodges in the 13 colonies with this ready-made system already. What are the chances that those lodges were used as safe houses, as, you know, uh, houses to pass along important information from, you know, from town to town or, or whatever? Uh, very high, I think. More yeah, than likely. That network probably could also carry communiques very quickly. You could you dib- distribute information very quickly among the colonies through that network. <clears throat> and then how, how crazy is that where in those colonies throughout those years, I mean, you, you had both um, patriots, as we call them now, and we had uh, uh, monarchists, we had loyalists, we had yeah. all in the same yeah. lodge. But, <clears throat> but yet chances are that they still honored some of what Freemasonry was teaching us as far as, hey, you know, let's, let's keep this on, you know, for us. This is how we do it. This is how we're, how we're going to, I don't know, help somehow. I mean, they, the, our charges and our constitutions are very, very adamant that we are not to be part of any revolution or anything like that. I'm not too sure about that, even to, to this day. Um, I think those things were written by a loyalist more than likely didn't want to get his head chopped off. So he had to put that in there so that the king doesn't put too much attention on, on these masons. Uh, but I believe, yes, if you were to ask me, did they use it as a network to pass along communiques? Yes, I, I have to. It's just too obvious. 120 lodges and 13 colonies. I mean, it's just too ready made. Yeah, and built for the purpose of it, doing that. Now, let me share some interesting coincidences here uh, before we, we move along. I think, I think all of you will appreciate this. It says here that by a remarkable coincidence, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, the only two signatories of the Declaration of Independence, later to serve as presidents of the United States, both died on the same day, July 4th, 1826, which was the 50th anniversary of the Declaration, Jefferson even mentioning the fact. Although not a signatory of the Declaration of Independence, James Monroe, another founding father who was elected president, also died on July 4th, 1831, making him the third president who died on the anniversary of independence. The only U.S. president to have been born on Independence Day was Calvin Coolidge, who was born on July 4th, 1872. So, how about that? Now, um, going back to the... uh, uh, some of these founding fathers uh, were Masons, and they drew from the Masonic Constitutions of the Freemasons, which was the first book published in the colonies by Benjamin Franklin. This is why a lot of uh, conspiracy theorists say that this nation was founded on Freemasonry, a secret society, because you have all these, all these cool little factoids, you know, they, they keep coming up over and over and over, where Freemasonry was heavily involved somehow or another, you know, when we when uh, construction on the White House began, what happened? George Washington and the Masons did a ceremony, the Cornerstone Ceremony and full regalia. I mean, it's over and over and over again. We keep getting confronted with the Masonic influences on our nation, but I don't believe it's for a nefarious or evil intention, as some of these uh, conspiracy theorists are trying to make it out to be. All right, so... Uh, um, now let's go, let's go to something that wasn't talked about here, uh, uh, in, in some of the other podcasts and, and because this is Masonic muscle and we combine, you know, Freemasonry and, and health and exercise and trying to encourage my brethren to uh, get out there and improve their level of, of fitness and health. Uh, let's talk about the state of the water during that time. Water was, uh, unhealthy from, uh, what I'm understanding. Uh, therefore... Uh, they drank mainly beer, wine, whiskey. Well, um, I don't think necessarily it's that water was unhealthy. Um, 
standing water is always bad because that breeds bacteria. But they didn't they didn't know that you could sterilize water by boiling it. So um, it, going back, you know, all the way back to you know the legions of Rome or even the armies of Alexander, uh, every soldier he had his his daily quota of wine or or beer uh, for him to drink, and it was just it was just purely because the risk of, of drinking uh, water that you might find puts your army at risk of dysentery and a whole bunch of other uh, issues that they, they just weren't willing to deal with. So, so they would actually, for the Romans, they would actually ship with them amphora of wine, of which each soldier, you know, he had a daily ration of wine. The Egyptians, you know, were drinking beer, probably very much the same, the same thing. So... Uh, so they just didn't know, uh, how to sterilize it. And they also didn't know how to test for whether or not it was contaminated or not. So there was just the general consensus was, was almost that you can't really trust it. So you would, yeah, they would drink mm. beer or wine or grog, which watered down rum or, you know, something. Grog. Like to add to your, uh, <laughs> uh, Roman, which you were talking about the Romans, I read, either I read or I heard uh, maybe I, I heard it, but um, if it wasn't for their discovery of the ginger root, they would have never been able to conquer, you know, what they conquered because this helped the soldiers <clears throat> in their stomach. They would take the ginger root and any, you know, sour stomach from water or, or whatever they had eaten would really help out, you know, their uh, their stomach. So I thought that was like, wow, man, these guys really pay attention to all these little things that they need in order to help their you know their the medicine of the time well my my understanding is that the the two things that contributed most to the expansion of human civilization not not to the growth of human civilization but the two things that contributed most to the expansion of human civilization was one salt because now we could preserve meat, we could make salted meat. This actually, the salt alone actually extended how far our boats or the boats, the triremes and all that could sail. And the second thing was beer, mm. uh, actually to have something to drink, some form of, of potable water, that those two things, salt and beer, allowed us to travel farther over land and over sea more than any other technological developments so the, is, is this why the uh, pirates had rum? I mean, that, that instead of beer, they, they would have rum. But you know what? It makes sense. And for those of you thinking, well, well, uh, yeah, but what about the beer? It would be flat. They didn't put the stuff that they put in now in the beer. The beer was flat already. There, there wasn't uh, the carbonation, the bubbling that, no, that they, we get. They, they didn't drink it cold. No, and they didn't drink it cold, room temperature. So beer was a different creature, animal. I know Greek wine was highly concentrated. They, they It was a a common practice to actually water down uh, the Greek wine because <laughs> it was so strong. As a matter of fact, that's how they, the Greeks beat the, um, the Cyclops. Oh, with the wine. Was they, they gave him wine, but they didn't water it down. They gave it to him straight. <laughs> so he, they got him on a good one, and then they, like they poked his eye out with a oh. stick or something. Oh, I don't remember that part, but now, okay, now that makes sense. Now... Um, I'm as th thanks to uh, I was listening to Joe Rogan and thanks to Joe Rogan because uh, he had a Fourth of July uh, little thing going on. He had a bottle of Buffalo Trace and uh, they were dressed up, you know, as like the founding fathers with the wigs and everything. And they were they had the whole setup, and so you know they they had a good uh, conversation about you know the Fourth of July and all that. And when they started drinking the Buffalo Trace, as as my brother Matt will serve us some some Buffalo Trace here. I'm going to read to you a little history of Buffalo Trace. So, Buffalo Trace is the oldest whiskey in the United States. Nice. That's a good sound right there. The company claims the distillery to be the oldest continuously operating distillery in the United States. Another distillery with a similar historical extent is Burke's Distillery, now used for the production of Maker's Mark. Check that out. According to its citation in the Registry of National Historic Landmarks, Burke's Distillery origins extend to 1805, and Burke's Distillery is listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the oldest operating bourbon distillery. 
Records indicate that distilling started on the site that is now the Buffalo Trace Distillery in 1775 by Hancock Lee and his brother Willis Lee, who died in 1776. So how about that? So 1776, <coughs> the oldest distillery. Cheers. <coughs> Salud. Salud. Mm. It's not bad. A uh, little, uh, uh, it's got a little bite. No, it's very yeah. smooth. But uh, that's really smooth. If if you are on a budget and you need a you know some good whiskey on a budget, go out and get your bottle of Buffalo Trace for twenty five bucks or less, and it's not bad. And you will be, uh, you know, honoring the oldest distillery in the United States going back to seventeen. 17- 75 so how about that it's very mellow uh very smooth i think i get a little bit of like berries at the end of it maybe a little bit of chocolate mm. so the founding fathers something like this we're sipping on this neat very yeah. easy to do yeah we're sipping so. on this yes and i like to have my neat um for those of you california masons you guys and if you guys have been a california mason for a while you know that uh, September is Constitutional Observance Month, which we will be doing a podcast on that, on the Constitution, governments, uh, and everything connected to it. We're just setting, we're just setting the table here over the, these next couple of days with, you know, the Declaration of Independence, this very important document of the founding of our country, as we all should. Part of the problem is that we all didn't take this seriously. And now that uh, the the government is up in our ass and we don't know what to do, part of the answer is learn about these documents. Learn about what they actually say versus what you think they say. And, you know, uh, um, meditate on them so that you can begin to speak and act from this foundation instead of just reacting and wondering what the hell is going on. All right, back to our show. What about colonial food? I mean, we talked about water. Okay, so I said it wrong. I said that that it was unhealthy water, but okay, uh, you know, they they just didn't have the science they of figuring out. Right. Okay. Right. They didn't trust it. Okay. So uh, they didn't trust it. That's different. Well, so <clears throat> I mean, this they were basically eating. British fare, British and Irish fare, boiled potatoes, mm. pot roasts, uh, a lot of stuff like that. Uh, I think during the, during the period, I know the Irish did this is boil the shit out of everything. You know, you, you, <laughs> you make a big pot in the morning and you boil the shit out of it till it's mush. And then you, you, you know, slop that down your gullet, uh, in the <laughs> afternoon. So, um, uh, now, as I understand it also, they were, they were having problems. Um, a lot of the seed stock that they came over with, they, they wasn't taking very well, you know, to the American soil. Um, we had touched on this a little bit earlier today that, that some of the colonies actually had a better go, uh, at agriculture than, mm-hmm. than some of the other ones because they, they were occupying many different latitudes. So each one was almost in its own unique climate. Uh, practically so um <clears throat> so what was good for the goose may not have been good for the gander in the in the term of crops and and all that that sort of thing and and i know that um for some of the early con- colonialists they were having such an issue with the agriculture that the native americans actually came in and helped them out right and they <clears throat> a common practice for the native americans was to grow corn and in between the corn you grow beans and the beans would grow up the corn stalk right Mm. and then around your corn stalks that you have your beans growing on you plant potatoes Mm. because potatoes are very aggressive and they ward off a lot of other hostile plants that can move in and suck all the nutrients so they'd always grow these potatoes beans and and corn together and i know that Some of these agrarian techniques were taught, you know, to the early colonials because they were they were just having a rough go. It was not easy. It was not easy. I think 
some of the colonies had a much tougher time, especially in the north. I think they had a much tougher time and a much tougher go of it than, than some of the colonies in the south. Here's a little bit of a breakdown of what you're talking about, Matt. It says uh, New England colonies, growing seasons were short, so they depended more on British imports, corn crops, wild game, and seafood. Puritans dominated the population, so the recipes tended to be simple. Middle colonies, growing seasons were longer, and they were called the breadbasket colonies due to the number of crops that were grown in their soil. Due to Quaker influence, cream cheese and various fruit butter were developed. And the southern colonies... The growing season was year-round, and the population was more diverse. There was a clear difference in the diets of the wealthy and the poor. Type of foods, crops. Throughout the colonies, they depended on their crops to sustain their food supply throughout the year. Here is a list of the common crops that were grown throughout the colonies. Wheat, rice, barley, <coughs> oats, rye, corn, pumpkins, squash, and beans. Seafood. All of the first colonies were located near the ocean, which gave the colonists a large supply of seafood. They were dependent on the ocean and what it would provide. Here's a list of options for seafood. Whales, seals, cod, halibut, um, mackerel, sea bass, herrings, flounder, hake, tuna, sturgeon, trout, salmon, clams, oysters, lobsters, mussels, and then Wild game was deer, squirrel, opossum, rabbit, hare, elk, bear, bear, what the hell, mountain goat, coyote, what, fox, raccoon, porcupine, weasel, beaver. Hey, when you're a hungry man, it's not a choosy man. <laughs> and then the various types of birds, you know, turkeys, geese, uh, partridge, quails, uh, grouse, uh, tar ptarmigons, prairie chickens, and woodcock. And domesticated animals, beef, pork, lamb, mutton, chicken, uh, and goose. You know, so it, it's pretty extensive what they were able to develop, but that happened over time. At the beginning, they were having a tough no, go. No, they were it. slugging it out yeah. in the beginning. I mean, it, <clears throat> yeah, it was not a clear-cut yeah. <laughs> victory at all. No, uh, as a matter of fact, I remember it was like somewhere in Well, because they were also skirmishing <clears throat> with some of the Native Americans. So, so they were kind of on their heels. Like, let's not forget that. This, this wasn't... Right. You know, that they, they didn't land here with, you know, open arms from all of the, the nativos that were here. I, I, I either I, I read somewhere <laughs> and I saw a documentary. I'm leaning more towards the documentary. It was saying that the Indians, you know, they, they witnessed the... Puritans, you know, the first the first boat that landed over here and then they set up a colony and they witnessed their first winter there and a bunch of them died in the second winter. And then this went on for, for a couple of years until finally they just got tired of their ass and like, all right, let's go over there and help these dumb asses. They just, they're not getting it. So they had to go over there and, and teach them how to survive the winter, how to, how to plant a couple crops that would, that would help them through. And then we're going to teach them a few of the, uh, you know, secrets that they learned over, over the many years. And these guys were astonished. I mean, these, these uh, pilgrims were just like, how can it be? These savages know how to survive, how to plant, how to fish, all this stuff. I mean, th this, this can't be. But they took their advice and they survived and they started getting better for it. So I, I always thought that was very... Uh, enlightening funny right because the way in the documentary they said is yeah the indians just got fed up of watching their dumb asses you know just struggle and fail they couldn't figure it out <laughs> Jeez. and the, the puritans are an inter interesting aspect of that whole thing too at least for me because you know, for one, our, our culture still holds on to a lot of these puritanical views and values um, are, are still prevalent uh, in our society. And uh, these pilgrims, they weren't really the first people to line up to go to the New World. Uh, England was tired of these Puritans, you know, watering down all their fun and putting a wet blanket and all the, the fun the British were were we're having over there in England. So they wanted some place to send these, some place to put these, these Puritans, these, uh, <clears throat> well, they were like religious radicals, 
they yeah. were they were they were seen as as being they, religious they, radicals. Yeah, they so. weren't Catholic. They weren't Anglican. Like, what what are you guys? <clears throat> they, they weren't Calvinists. You know, what what were you? Yeah, they're, and they're they're marching to their own doctrine and they in a, in a very strict format, mm. in a very strict form. So, um, so uh, they were they were too uptight for England. So they got rid of them. They came over here and. You know, this being ended up being a lot of the found foundational fabric that we have in our in our culture. Mm. Um, we can still see a lot of those those views are are prevalent. So, I still I still hold on to what I said earlier today, and that is that you, you know it seems that we part of the problem part of the reason why we're in the situation that we're in now as a country is that we only pay homage to 4th of July one time out of the year. We, we don't continuously try to learn and, and get in touch and stay in touch with what that philosophy was, what they were trying to do, which will open the doorway up to understanding what our true responsibilities are, right? Um, it's almost as if the self-reliance has been bred out of us over these hundreds of years as a nation. And Plato did, either Plato or Socrates is the one that said that nations, you know, go through a pendulum, you know, every 200 years from a absolute totalitarian government to a uh, republic that it's supposed to function the way it's supposed to function, which is the medium. And then finally, like a democracy, which is tyranny mob rules yeah, mob yeah. rules and stuff like that and and, and many uh, uh, a historian that are aware of this have pointed that out that said man we're long overdue we're long overdue and we the pendulum has swung and that's why we're seeing this uh, these democratic ideas uh you know how prevalent they are and mob rules and and what's going on uh so as we're at your house on the 4th of July and we're, we're on the roof and, you know, we, we're there to see fireworks and there's no fireworks. That was, that, that was interesting, you know, um, in that part of uh, the valley. But then we look down to where my mom and dad live and it's just total fucking war zone. You know, mm -hmm. Beirut, little Beirut, they're just <laughs> yeah. fireworks. And I asked my dad later on, he says, son, they started like since six and they didn't stop till like two in the morning. It was just going and going and going. So they had one of the best 4th of July shows that they have had ever, you know, in 360, all around them. Especially the, the, the neighbors in the back, you said, were just going and going and going and even had extracurricular stuff. Of just, course. You know, just going, right? Of course. But, but um, the fact that we do only observe the day one, one, one day out of the year which, which is correct, but as soon as it's over, we just forget about it. And then we go off and live our life. And so it disconnects us from, from well, what it really it's, means. It's not anchored into anything substantial, right, that, that we can connect to or resonate with in any kind of a deep, <clears throat> any kind of a deep way mm. um, at all. And let me, uh, well, let me, let me just posit this <clears throat> i can't tell you how many over the years i cannot tell you how many people um have said to me like around guns mm. like oh that's <clears throat> you know uh, you know i always thought about getting a gun you know i just have to go out and get the license for it there is no license your the you know your second amendment is your license to keep and bear arms there is no <laughs> You're, okay. you're basically <laughs> cucking yourself by saying that now you have to go to an authoritative body and give permission. to issue you a license, to give you permission to, to own this thing. And, I, and I've heard that so many times, you know, just around, <clears throat> around guns. You don't need a license to own a firearm. That, that is your <laughs> right as a, as a citizen to do that if you choose. Now, whether or not you train yourself with it, that's that would be the thing to do if you're going to have it in your house. That's something else. Mm. <clears throat> that's something else. But there is nobody that can tell you as long as you're not a felon, there is nobody to tell you, you know, there's nobody to appeal to 
whether or not you can get a firearm if you want one, as long as you're in good legal standing, there's, there's nothing to prevent you from doing that. There is no authority that you have to go to or, or seek out in order to own a firearm if you want one. So this is the kind of thing that it, it, it seems like the average American is not aware of this. There's your, your right is your license, right? Your, <laughs> the, the second amendment is your license right. <laughs> to own firearms. If you want to go down that way, down that road. So, <clears throat> um, but we are not really taught, um, government at all. I mean, I, I think even the government class that I took when I was in high school is just laughable as being, <laughs> as being any kind of, it's schooling. It's not education at all. It's just, it's schooling. Here's the different agencies and bodies of government. And that's about it. <laughs> Nothing about how it works or the inner nuances of how they uh, parlay or how they relate to one another and how they act uh, together. So, um, so yeah, it's only one day a year, I think, because of, uh, it, it's a conflict of interest to our standing government to educate people in government and in the constitution and in the bill of rights. It stands as conflict of interest to what our government is trying to do. Because here's the way I look at this. <clears throat> the the our our polis is educated by the department of education which is funded by the government and they choose exactly what the curriculum is right so they're getting exactly what they pay for they're getting exactly what they're what they paid for mm -hmm. if they wanted something different then they would have paid for something different but they don't want something different they don't want <laughs> they don't want something different Right. Okay. What, the, what they want is a, a, a compliant populace, hmm. right, that doesn't really question, you know, what are the rights? What are your powers? Are you overstepping your bounds? You know, or just like we had talked about before, the, the power of the juror, right? The, the government doesn't want you to know your, your power as a jury, that you not only can now review the crime, but also the law. Right? And, how, and how it's being applied and how it's being applied. Yeah. Right. The government doesn't want you, doesn't want us to know these things. So why is that? Well, obviously that's a conflict of interest to the government. Right. So that, that in turn also makes it a conflict of interest to us. Right. So our, our very own government now stands in conflict to interest to our, the very rights which are supposed to be protected by this government. And we, and we can see this, I mean, we could point these out all night long. Now, yeah. um, <clears throat> and, and you're right, and, and I want to continue this in, uh, in, in part two of what we're going to do. Okay, okay. Because this, this carries over into a Masonic Lodge and the rights and the privileges of a member. So uh, keep that yeah. in mind, all right, because that's going to be part two of this because it just, it's crazy how, how, how many... Uh, not coincidences, what do you call them? It's just the congruencies there are. And what we're actually, I, I think I once heard, I think I once read, and I probably have them in one of my books there. It says that free, as, as you become a Freemason and you take your first, second, and third degree, and then, and then now you have access to all your rights and privileges as a full-fledged member, right? As a master Mason, um, you know, now you're voting, now you're voicing your opinion, now you're, you're uh, taking on responsibilities for the administrative of the lodge. And, and they said, well, what are you doing? You know, what, 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 is that, what is that defining? You are practicing how to be a citizen. You are practicing your responsibilities, duties, and obligations as a citizen. And the only way to affect change is to begin to become active and and take the take on the responsibility knowing the pitfalls but in a lodge that was already happening before we got our freedoms so therein lies you know what i'm talking about as far as uh, part two 
and, and uh, the conflicts of interest, all of that, because all those things happen also as well within a lodge. So well, the Greeks can never really get away from this. I mean, they were uh, these are the best and smartest men, uh, you know, at least that we have historical record of. And they couldn't even agree in, in how you do this. How do, how, do you, how do you have a form of governance where you have civil liberty? And, and, and these ideas of personal sovereignty and freedom, how do you, how do you have those uh, in, inside of a state that's effective? Nobody, nobody's been able to answer that question. So what we have is a history that's chocked full of experiments trying to um, <clears throat> find this balance between personal sovereignty, personal liberty, and, and the needs of the state, right? The, the communists tried it in a few different states in, in their way, right? Uh, and we have... Um, you know, examples where more of a democratic approach uh, was taken or democratic socialism uh, has been tried. And, and these other amalgams of these different political ideas now are, are starting to, to, to bridge together. And none of those have actually delivered on, on what they set out, that this, this notion of, of personal sovereignty and individual liberty None of these uh, uh, models, they, they've all failed. And really almost all, too, almost all around, you know, corruption around who's coining the money. Mm. Okay, so that's... Now we're uh, getting somewhere. Yes, but, but I don't want to make the conversation, because that is, a, that is an issue and a problem, and it does have an, an impact. But at the same time, there's, there's still the political science argument that doesn't have anything to do with the, the printing of the money and, and who's coining it, right? Mm. So they're, they're, the, the, the political model as an idea and then the actual functional uh, uh, practice of it. And unfortunately, and, and this again was, was something that, that, that the Greeks struggled with, um, you know, the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths uh, struggled with, the Spartans struggled with, is that commerce. Commerce <clears throat> seems to erode um, some of the social fabric that, that holds our society together at large. Uh, we just have we just have example after example after example of this. I mean, th this was what ultimately brought down the Spartans, right? Was they had to, they needed a navy uh, to to combat Athens. Uh, you know, Athens ruled the seas. Uh, even if the Spartans could lay siege to Athens, Athens could still <clears throat> be resupplied uh, via the ocean with their triremes and their massive trade network. So. The only reason, the only, the only way that the Spartans were going to win this, uh, you know, this arms race, was to have a navy. In order to have a navy, they had to have, they had to have commerce. They had to have coin, and this pretty much was the beginning of the end for Sparta. The the virtue of it, it broke. Commerce broke the back of of Spartan culture. That the. What they, they call themselves the equals. I forget the, uh, the, the Greek word. But mm. this broke that. It, it broke that, that system. They, they could not... Um, they seemingly could not occupy the same space. <clears throat> the, and we forgot, I forgot to mention uh, earlier that the first form of warfare that the... British Empire waged against the colonies was economic warfare. When, as soon as they found out that we were printing colonial script at interest-free, they took away that power. But right before they did, though, they got a hold of one of our printing presses, or our, what do you call them? 
the ones that, pr that actually printed the the script, and they were just going to print a ton of them out and and flood the market with extra. They did. They were script. they were on a boat. They did it on a boat and in the, in the Boston Bay uh, Harbor. They were doing it. Well, Washington's one of Washington's Secret Six found out, and they told Washington where it was out, and they blew the shit out of that you know that ship, and it yeah. sunk, and so that they averted. You know that, yeah. but but um, they were trying to debase the the Brits were trying to debase the our colonial the, script. Yeah. So economic, you're absolutely right. The economic war, um, the economic aspect of any rise and fall of a civilization is tantamount to you understanding what was happening and who was really in power. And this is the same here, what we're talking about, because eventually when we went to war, when we finally Okay, you know, Declaration of Independence, we dug our heels in the ground. Okay, where, where are we going to get money, number one? Number two, when we get the money, where are we going to get weapons? Who's going to sell those weapons? And number three, like, who, who, who's going to fight on our side? You know, France, we, we, they said they would, and eventually they did. But uh, this, this cycle repeats itself over and over and over throughout history. You just got to know where to look. You know, but we're we're you're you're you just tapped into something that that is very uh, uh, pivotal in understanding play, the players in the game, what is happening and why. Like even right now, where's the money going? Who's providing it? You got this war in the Ukraine, okay? Who's funding this? Where are they getting their weapons? Who's uh, who's on whose side? You know, there's this. And that's a whole conversation for another time, but you really tapped into something that... that well, uh, it's, it's part and parcel. I mean, I don't even think we can even have the conversation about our independence without talking about the money. You can't have a conversation about a state without having a conversation about the money. That, that conversation has to happen. Well, in a lodge... Point. In a lodge... Well, there you go. Yeah. You know, if you want, yeah, and I've heard the little, you know, a lodge with no money is happier with the, you know, with the lodge than the lodge that has, a, you know, $5 million in the bank. Well, I beg to differ, uh, brethren. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I beg to differ, brethren. I would love my lodge to have $5 million in the bank, uh, have a, 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 um, a business building that we're renting out, all the members don't pay dues because of this, because we can afford it. We have these awesome festive boards. We have, you know, just, you know, this all, all lounge. That, all that's worthless if you're too, you know, paralyzed to even spend it or even do anything and do any good works with it. You know, I mean, and there you at go. a certain point, you know, there, like there a lot of the institutions it's get good like, too afraid to lose it. Yeah. You know, so they don't want to. They, they, they start say, playing to not to lose. Right. Then, then to continue to take the chances that they were taking at at the, at the beginning. What got them there? Right, right. They they shift gears. Uh, yeah. So, uh, I mean, yeah, the the, the colonials. Uh, you cannot talk about that war of independence without talking about the money. And and isn't it funny? I mean, they touch upon it very briefly, and that's that's when you talk about, okay, the war is over, and you have the colonies, and you have the Articles of Confederation. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so they couldn't figure out uh, how to. Uh, uh, it's not a, it's not force, but how do you call it? Yeah, yeah. How do you, would you? What's the word that they use? It's in it's in this book here. Uh, compel. They couldn't figure out a way to compel the other colonies, or now new states, to pay their fair share of the of the war debt. Mm. <clears throat> so they had to form this. Uh, constitutional convention and records it's on record as they're gonna go and just um, um, write amendments necessary to the articles of confederation that would allow them to now somehow compel all the colonies to pay their fair share that didn't happen they put they scrapped the articles of confederation and all of a sudden are working on a new constitution was which was not agreed upon and and they just sprung it on on everybody and now all of a sudden wait a minute there's nothing wrong with the articles it just needs a little you know tinkering with 
and and we're good. But all of a sudden we have this new constitution, which money's involved and all this stuff. I mean, without money, with, with how are you? How can you go forward? Some form of 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 of, of a commerce, you cannot move forward. So, yeah, great point. Well, it's interesting that um, I, I don't remember what provision it is that it says that it's the duty of Congress, right, to coin, to, to mint coin. Congress uh, has, is the only one that has power right. to, to coin money. And then money. you have the 13th Amendment, which just came just shortly after that, which now gives the power to mint coin to a private entity. Well, that's Which years later. That's what we the, have. The third. It is. Or, it is. It is yeah. years later, but yeah. it's not that many amendments later. Yeah. Oh. It, oh okay. Uh, yeah. Right. Right. You know, it wasn't. It's not that far away. Uh, and <clears throat> and okay, so now we're getting into some other stuff. So I I, I want to finish it right here, uh, even though we're. we're <laughs> I, I do because I knew this was going to happen. We're going to start talking about it because this is a subject near and dear to us, and a couple of other of our For brothers. Sure. For that sure. I that for for sure I wish they were here because they would have contributed a ton because Absolutely. because it's been our bread and butter for many many years especially uh, here in California Masons where we we uh, September is Constitutional Observance Month and so we make a whole month of it and part of our Trivium discussion groups will be centered around that uh, so uh, before we wrap it up here you know I just wanna uh, once again man thank you for being here Matt. I know we're going to record many more of these, um, you know, and we just finished up an awesome workout in the garage uh, with uh, Daniel Duardo, my son Magnus, and, uh, you know, Matt was out there waiting so we can we can uh, get to the, the, the real work, you know, with the mental work. Uh, thank you, sir. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, what, do you, what are you grateful for uh, on this particular evening here with us uh matt before we close up and who do you want to well we have some last last words of you know closing yes well um you know we have some exciting things happening uh and stirring in in uh palm springs so uh we're going to be launching some uh some pro programs for our prospects and for our members um i've been investing a lot of time uh into that so i'm really looking forward to that um, uh, trying to put more meat on the plate, mm. you know, of our, of our prospects and our brothers. Mm. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> so I'm really looking forward to that. Um, and I just love being really in these, in these conversations. This was, uh, a part of the, the draw, you know, to Freemasonry, uh, for me was, was having this level of conversation. Like let's, let's really, you know, open the hood and, and, and get underneath and look around and like, let, let's really see what's going on here. Um, so I think that's one of the things that I've been, you know, uh, I've always so appreciative about, about Freemasonry and some of our other brothers, just so knowledgeable, uh, just so amazingly well-read, um, just always, always amazingly insightful and insightful conversations. I learned so much from, from all of them. So uh, I'm really grateful for that. And, um, yeah, I'll, I'll just, I'll just leave that there. I'm grateful for the space and the quality of conversation that we have. Hey, well, I mean, I can easily diddle that. Right. But, um, I'm grateful for today. I'm grateful for, uh, uh, my family. Uh, I'm grateful that we were able to have this conversation and, and really expand on some of this 4th of July uh some of the the missing points you know points that i wish uh were discussed more on the on these masonic podcasts and you know maybe that was our you know our, our uh mission you know, not theirs they, they they've been bringing a lot of uh quality <clears throat> education for years and years and years and now you know i'm, I'm bringing this little you know, or we're bringing this little uh, uh, different aspect uh, to it just to help us gain greater knowledge. So I'm grateful that that we're able to provide that and that you're here to help us uh, do that. So uh, with that, I will close this session out. And always remember, brethren, 
you got to keep pushing. You have to continue to move forward and be with the people you want to be with. Commune with the people you want to commune with. Always challenge yourself. Stop living in your comfort zones and get out there and get some. Anything else? No? Okay. <laughs> These strong sessions are calculated to inculcate in the mind of the novitiate the importance of subduing our passions and improving ourselves in masonry, feeding the attentive ear with the sound of the instructive tongue, endeavoring to add to the common stock of knowledge and understanding, effectively spreading the cement of knowledge and wisdom, and hopefully spreading some enthusiasm to get out there and get your body in motion. Go into your lodge's library and look up those books about the mysterious origins of Freemasonry. How about that?